We are all a part of one, yet we didn't sign up for it. We were born into it, we didn't get to choose it. It was chosen by the generation before us. We do get to shape some of it, but it is partly we are the recipients of it. It is your tribe. It's who you belong to. You carry a title. You carry, no pay with that, sorry. Uh, you carry this title throughout life. Uh, people in marketing will market to you based on your membership in this tribe. What am I talking about? I'm talking, it's not a riddle. It is a riddle. But what, what am I talking about as far as who are you? What are you a part of that you didn't know you were a part of? This is this sociological, anthropological kind of a part of, uh, of nerdiness that I get into, uh, that I enjoy studying people so much that I read this kind of stuff, file this stuff away. But I like studying the different stratas of our society and understanding how people tick and the way people do the way they do what they do. And this is one of those that I've just kind of nerded out on from time to time. And so let's talk about it for a moment because there's different people in different tribes in this room and uh, you make up a tribe. And so what tribe are you a part of? If you were born pre-World War, World War II, then you are a part of what's called the builder generation. All right. Now, my grandmother, who died at 94, was a part of this, and I can remember her very well. Uh, she was a dear person in my life, and she was a person that w- could make a penny go further than anybody else. Does anybody have a relative that was like that, could squeeze the life out of a penny? Now, they're probably maybe a part of the builder generation, or you may be married to that person. I don't know who it is. But if, if they grew up during the Great Depression, which is the builder generation, if they grew up during World War One, World World War II, they know what it's like to, to, to try to make it and, or to not make it or to have the same thing for the same meal every day or to wear the same clothes all week long. And so I can appreciate my Nana, as I called her. Uh, I can appreciate her values on life. She was a part of this builder generation. She grew up. In fact, uh, it was Tom Brokaw who wrote a book called The Greatest Generation. This is the greatest generation because they're the ones who helped America persevere during its darkest hour of the Depression and the World Wars, the Great Wars, and so forth. They're the ones who held us together. And that makes them the greatest generation when we could have easily uh, been incinerated, been uh, engulfed into everything else. That's the builder generation. Maybe you're a part of them. Maybe you're a boomer. A boomer were the ones who were baby boom, they came into into this world following World War II, uh, and they were born between the, uh, the years of 1946 and 1964. Just invert those numbers. That's the way that I, I remember that. So they were born in that period of time frame, and they're this generation that they boomed because after World War II, mom and daddy come back together, and they're glad to see each other, and things happen after that. And so babies come out. And so that boomer generation was born during that time, and maybe, maybe like me, your parents are of that generation generation. And I can remember growing up looking at the boomer generation, even as a teenager hearing about the boomer generation and how they were the the ones in the workforce and they're the ones shaping our culture of that time. Now, they gave birth to moi, the buster generation, now formerly known as Gen X, okay? This is a lot of years ago. Now, the years and the exact dates and times and when one ends and one begins is a little bit up for debate. Now, what's not really much up for debate anymore is the classification, the tribal names, if you will. That buster generation was born between 65 and 84. I'll let you try to figure out what 
bandwidth I'm in, lean towards the 84. It'll, it'll impress me or it'll, it'll flatter me. All right. Anyway, so that's the Buster generation and they were born from the boomer generation, obviously. Now, since that time, we've had what is coming up on uh, the the marketplace. They're graduated from college. They're, they're moving out. If they're not already out, they've got young families as that's the millennial generation or Gen Y, as they were called for a number of years. And I can remember, I pulled out some things out of some files this past week of some prior names that were given to Gen Y that was prior to them landing on millennial. It's funny how it's landed on millennial now. And now all the talk is about the millennials and who they are and what they are. In fact, if you're a millennial, you probably get tired of being typecast and being marketed to and being called, well, you're just a millennial. That's why. And so you think that way. Well, because the generation before you and the generation before you, every generation has its distinguishing marks. Now, again, we are handed a generation we're handed something, but we also make something out of what we are handed. And so they're right now shaping our society in a big time way. And again, a lot of retail markets to them. Companies want them. Churches want them. Schools want them. Everybody wants the millennials to be a part of their organization. But let me tell you about the next generation, not Y, not X, but Gen Z. Gen Z does not have a name yet. All right, they're the unnamed. They're just called Gen Z. I attended a webinar recently on this and downloaded a lot on on them. It's very intriguing. They were from 1999. Now the millennials, you'll notice that they ended the millennium. How they got their name, how it landed on their name, pretty much landed on the fact that they ended a millennium. Okay, and that's how they they got their name. Now Gen Z will get a name eventually. Sociologists and anthropologists will land on one. It will, it will win out, cannibalize different ones, but anyway, it will land on one. They're born 1999. They start the millennium till 2015. So that literally spans everybody that we're raising right now. Everybody that's a senior in high school was born 1999 or all the way down to your three-year-old that's in the nursery right now. So we have over 300 on our campus any given Sunday, over 300 of these Gen Zs. On Wednesday night, we'll have over 150, maybe 200 uh, Gen Zers going throughout our campus. We had just had one weekend, had over 200 for that. So you can see how there's a, there's a lot of emphasis at Grace Point on Gen Z. We want to do it well. We want to train them well. We want to, you want your family to grow up and be, be, be something significant whatever they end up being. So here, I want you to classify yourself now. Who are you? Take out your phones, okay? We're going to do this little phone survey thing. You're going to dial in to, to a number here. Dial in, if you will, in the, in the little, uh, as if you're calling someone or texting someone, 22333, and put in the message line, GPCNWA, okay? And now classify yourself. What age are you in? And this is our congregation from the first gathering. So those who were part of the first gathering. So if you're a part of, put A if you're a builder, put B if you're a, a, a boomer. And maybe if you're a boomer, you don't even have text. No, you have text messaging. I know you do. Uh, maybe the builders don't have text messaging. Uh, so I can tell you right now, we can't get our kids next door uh, to text in. So that's one of the reasons Gen Z will be so low is because they're not even in the room right now. All right. 300 of them are not going to be in the room today. And so, uh, but right in the middle there is where we find our church kind of settling uh, in that buster to millennial kind of age frame. Here's an interesting thing about the makeup of our congregation uh, and the makeup of who's here today. But let's talk about this Gen Z. Again, you don't get to decide the tribal name. You don't get to decide who you are going to be. Uh, it's kind of, you get to shape it, 
but it will be handed to you. There's, an, there's several names already floating around. One is the screen generation, all right? Because all they have known are screens, all right? Go to the highest schools in the schools and you see zombies walking around. All they know are screens. Screens are screens. And in fact, they were born whenever the iPhone was just coming on the scene. So now you can imagine this entire generation has not, had nothing but screens in their face. You go to the doctor's office, it's incredible. Mom walks in with her, could be a carry-on plain purse, and she carries it in, sits the kids down the doctor's office. All right, here's your screen, here's your screen, here's your screen. Everybody has their own little otter boxes on it, so they smash it when they put their little Cheerio fingers all on the screens. You know, they've, they, they've got, everyone's got their screens, okay? That's the generation. That could be a name. Some people are calling them the screenagers today, so it could be the screenagers. So that's just something to think about. But here's the one that's a little bit sad. Again, you don't get to decide it. It gets handed to you. You get to shape what generation you're part of, and that's the war generation. This is the generation that has never known a day that America has not been at war. They, born in 1999 to, the, to, to 2015, they have always lived with an awareness that America is at war on some foreign soil somewhere. We're fighting some unknown country. We're fighting some unknown terrorists. We're fighting some something, something somewhere out there. We're bombing somebody. There is the reality that this generation has never known a time that there's not been war. Just imagine that. War out there is very much a reality to them. But here's what's really sad. It's not just the war generation of what's out there. It's the war that's happening in here, inside our own country, inside our schools, inside our churches, inside our public parks, when you now have to be frightened that you might get shot. Let's just talk about schools for a moment, because that seems to be, in recent days, considering Parkland, Florida, and I never would have thought that even as I'm wrapping up the ending of this message, that there would be two more deaths at a school in Detroit or in Michigan on March 2nd that even follows what happened in Parkland. What, what about the war in our schools and the war for guns in our schools? Think about it. Again, let's go back to the builder generation for a moment. When you look at it in decade periods of time, you can go from 1930 to 1940 and see that reported shootings on school campuses or around school campuses in school buildings or on the playgrounds or wherever. There was eight and nine different shootings. Now, what happens in the next two decades is it doubles to 17 to 18. What happens in the next two decades, 70s and 80s, it doubles yet again to 30 and 39. What happens yet again In the 90s, in the 2000s, it doubles again to 62 and 63. You see the trend? We're we're talking generational. We're talking to where people are reporting that, that what happened in Columbine on April 1999. Remember when this generation Gen Z started? It was in 99. But they're reporting that what happened in those who have been surveyed and interviewed that survived their own school shootings or whatever, they were inspired by what happened at Columbine. That that inspired them. But let's talk about just the past seven years. In the past seven years, not even a full decade, 
There have been 145 school shootings. Think, Mike, you just stepped into the political arena. I'm going to say this now. I'm going to say it later. Sometimes being biblically correct is not being politically correct. And I'm going to tell you right now that I'm not going to take a side on who's going to be the problem, who's the, the Republicans are going to fix this, the Democrats are going to fix this, because you can clearly see this one, 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 one administration after another, we cannot curtail the ongoing, ever-increasing, exponentially increasing crisis of our land in the shootings that, listen, let me just say this, this generation owes the next generation a better future. And there's something about the day and age in which we live that we are not evolving into something better. And I'm not even going to talk about today the how. How do we fix this? More gun control, more gun laws, give the teachers guns. I, we're not, I'm, not, I'm not even going to go there. I'm not going to chase that rabbit. But listen, I want to just deal with the why. Well, what has happened with our humanity that we no longer value the other human? We call us the land of the free, the home of the brave, but we'll shoot one another. We'll kill an unborn baby. We'll have racism that's ever on the rise in our, I mean, what happened to civil rights movement? What happened to Jim Crow law? What happened to our nation that, that was supposed to be a land of opportunity and home of the brave and that we have racism and race crimes and, and war crimes and sex crimes and the Me Too movement that's just unearthing things. We have politicians now that we wanted to be impeached before, but we'll approve of them now. This generation owes the next generation a better future. The brokenness of our society. How did we get here? Malcolm Muldridge, former longtime University of Edinburgh professor chaplain, said it like this, the depravity of man is historically the most verifiable fact, yet is the most intellectually resistant. It's verifiable, guys. When you see just in school shoes, I'm just picking on that one because of Parkland High School. I could, I could have gone to racism. I could have gone to murders and death. I could have gone to so many other areas, but that's right now in front of us and it never ceases to be in front of us. And so I just want to let that be the, how did we get there? It's verifiable fact that there's a depravity of mankind that we're not fixing ourselves. We're not evolving into a better humanity. For the most educated, the wealthiest, but somehow something's broken inside of us. This generation owes the next generation a better future. And I, I forewarned you whenever you stepped in a few weeks ago in this series called Romans that it's going to get dark before it gets light. We're going to get hard before we get soft. It's going to get ugly before it gets pretty. We're going to have to step into the darkness. We're going to have to go backward before we can go forward. We're going to have to unpack some things, deal with some things, If we pretend the darkness isn't dark, it deepens the beauty of the light. If we can go back and say, okay, this is dark, and this is dark not just out here, out here on the peripheral, but this is dark inside of me. There's some darkness in me. 
And I've got to be able to shine light in here. But the problem is, in our society, what we want to do is we want to fix it by positive mental attitudes, by thinking happy thoughts, by giving every child a trophy and saying, think happy thoughts. Have a good self-esteem. What we've done by teaching everyone to think positive about me is we've turned us into narcissistic people. When it's all about me. It's going to get dark before it gets light. First Romans chapter 1 through 3 is exactly what it is. I didn't write it. I'm just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. No pun intended. It's just the way it is. But the thing is about Romans chapter 1 to 3 is really it serves as a commentary to Genesis chapter 1 to 3. I've never seen any more New Testament book aligned with Old Testament book give us a clearer picture and an understanding. And one of the ways that we're going to understand Romans is by understanding Genesis. There's this law in the hermeneutic principles that there's the law of first mentions. That if you really want to understand something that's mentioned in Romans, if it's mentioned in Romans but it's mentioned in Genesis, and you really want to understand it here, you got to go back to Genesis and understand it there. So when you understand it there, then it will give you light to understanding it into the future. So if you really want to understand the creative power of God and the greatness of our God, then you've got to not look at Romans. You've got to look at Genesis chapter 1. And so look, but let's today, just to show you that Genesis is mentioned in Romans, let's go to chapter 1, verse 19. It says, for what we can be, uh, what can be known about God is plain. So listen, God's not a mystery. He is mysterious for sure. But listen, if you, God's not unknown because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. You want to understand God. You want to see who God is. Look at creation. Look at the vistas. Look at the valleys. Look at the mountains. Look at the creation. And man, you can see through just general revelation that God exists and that he is there. But when he created it, he created it beautiful and perfect and spotless. There was shameless and it was sinless and it was guiltless and it was blameless and it was deathless and it was created because that's the kind of God who created it. We see... Genesis 1 and 2, right there in Romans 19 and 20. But we also see Genesis 3 in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. For by their unrighteousness, they suppress truth. Now, this is a troubling verse. I have to admit, when I came to it, I thought, oh my goodness, that's a, that's a, that's a dark message. That's a hard message. The wrath of God. I don't want to talk about the wrath of God. I want to talk about the love of God. Let's talk about 1 John, okay? Because that's where it talks about God is love and loves God. Let's talk about 1 John because that's not more fun. But you cannot appreciate, again, the light until you embrace the darkness. I can't appreciate what, what God wants to do in me completely in, in, in light and truth until I understand the dark place of which I'm coming from. And understanding the wrath of God is incredibly important to appreciating the love of God. In fact, the wrath of God is so disturbing that even Isaiah, the prophet, wrote in Isaiah 28, 21, it's a strange deed, quote, unquote, 
when you talk about the wrath of God. What is this wrath of God? The word wrath is where we get, uh, it's the Greek word orge. And it's where we get the English word agony. You can somewhat hear it in there, orge, agony. And it's literally like this. It's like a father who created a perfect world, put everything in place, gave us everything we needed and said, listen, you can be like me. You're carrying my image. But instead of being like me, mankind wanted to be God. And it just broke the heart of God. It brings agony upon him. It disturbs him to his core. It breaks his heart and it creates inside of him a wrath, a, 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 an anger, not a, not a, an emotional outburst, not something where he loses his cool and he, he, he blows off his steam at us and then he has to come back and apologize. God never loses his cool. He always maintains, it's always a righteous anger that he is holding uh, us accountable for. And as Paul is writing, he's writing from Corinth, if you remember, just north of Athens, Athens is to the south, where Alexandria, excuse me, where uh, uh, Socrates and Plato had their institutions, their learnings of, uh, of higher education. And so th- there's, this, uh, there's this philosophy that is spread through the land of Greece. But yet in Greece, it's one of the most immoral lands. And Paul is writing to Rome. As he's writing to Rome, the empirical power, he's writing to a very immoral, godless city that has taken on a lot of the philosophies of Socrates. Now, Socrates was the one who espoused, just trust your conscience. We still say the same thing today. Just trust your conscience. Go with your gut instinct. Let your conscience be your guide. That's Socrates. And what Paul is saying is, don't trust your conscience. And in this chapter, what he does is he lays out in kind of this didactic kind of very methodical, systematized way, he lays out a court case that's saying, listen, because he'll mention five different times, four. He starts a verse with four in verse 18, verse 19, four, verse 24, verse 21, four. He's laying out a case, therefore, verse 24. And then again in verse 26, 4. He's laying it out. He's laying out because of this, because of this, because of this. Then what happens because of this? It's a cause and effect. It's a cause and effect. Because of this, this is going to happen. And three different times he says the same thing. I want us to look at our text the way Paul writes it out. The way Paul unravels it here. And I want us to understand the cause and effect of our broken world, of our broken homes, of our broken promises, of our broken self. And let's understand the darkness so we can step fully into the light and appreciate every step we take in the light. First of all, let's talk about the cause of our brokenness. The first cause of our brokenness is because we suppress the truth. We don't like the truth. We want the truth to be our truth. Us make up the truth. Us make up the rules as we go. And it, let, let it be our truth. It's called relativism. We all have opinions and we all want our opinion to trump your opinion. And so be careful of that. Look at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness. Okay? Not doing the right things, not living the right way, not being the right person. God's wrath is against all that. Who by, how'd we get here? 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How did we get to unrighteousness? Because we suppress the truth. That's how we got there. And when we suppress the truth, what we basically are saying is, I don't want to hear the truth. I've got my opinions. Thank you very much. I appreciate what you said, but listen, I've got my views and you have your views. And you know what? Your view works for you. There is somewhere out there a truth, a, a, a truth that we must build on, a truth that we must stand on, a truth that we must live by. But in our culture today, and this is a 2001 study, so this is a long time ago, we don't believe that. Adults don't believe that. Across America, a survey was done. Truth always, is truth always relative? Three and one, a margin of three to one say yes. Truth is always relative based on where you are. Is truth really relative? I want to say no. But when we suppress it, we make it relative. We make our opinions greater than truth. See, a generation prior to us used to ask, what is right? What is right? What is wrong? Randy asked a very wise question around staff from time to time, and I love it, and I borrowed it and use it myself. What's the wise thing to do? Next time you're making a decision, throw that into your equation. What's the wise thing to do? Because basically what he's saying, what's the right thing to do? That's a generation ago. Now what we ask, what's the fair thing? What's fair? Is it fair? The kids will point out if it's not fair. We want to know if it's fair. We have, we have international justice missions. We have, we have justice causes and we have slave trafficking against, we're against that. And we're, we, we're, we talk about social justices and, and all that's good. All that has its place and all that needs to be a part of the conversation. But no longer is it about right or wrong. It's about what's just. My, my, <laughs> my appeal to you today is this, that you cannot have fairness without truth. Because all of a sudden, Who says that I can't buy from that little girl off the street if she's offering herself? Who says that I can't do drugs if I'm doing it in my own home? See, if there's not a right or a wrong, then, then it's really, it's just, you do what you want to do and you live in your own little chaotic world and I'll live in my own. Listen, there has to be a right and a wrong, but what happens in our society today and we've accepted it is that we suppress the truth as if there is no absolute truth. There's no absolute right or wrong, but let's go back to verse 17. Let's not just look at verse 18 where we see about the wrath of God. Let's see about the righteousness of God, the rightness of God for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, what he, what is the it? The it is referring back to the gospel, which we don't have time to go into that today. That's a theme of the entire book. Just hang with me on that. We'll be there a lot late in the future. For it's the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You want to know where the righteousness of God, you want to know what right is? You want to know what wrong is? It's not from one generation to the next generation to decide. It's from faith to faith, the generation to generation. It doesn't change. It doesn't move. It's not a target that adjusts with political parties. It's right and it's wrong. This generation owes the next generation a better future. Number two is we forget God. When we Silence, listen, when we silence or even mute the voice of truth, 
by saying my opinion is greater than truth. We press it down, we suppress it. The next move is a breath away. We forget God. Because if God is the righteousness of God and he is the standard of truth and he's the standard of right versus wrong and we we learn right from wrong whenever we study Jesus and we figure out he is our true north. But yet when we suppress the truth and now all of a sudden, now we're embracing and we forget God. Now I want to show you verse 21. Verse 21, I could read verse 21, verse 22, verse 23, verse 24. I could go right on down. But I just want to break down in very rapid form verse 21. And you'll see the digression of a society. First of all, in our forgetting of God, in verse 21, it says they knew God. Notice that. Now I will say this across our land, across our, uh, across this room today. There are people who know God, believe in God. I met somebody recently. Uh, I was I was hanging out with a guy, and he said, "I haven't been in church in twenty something years." Hey, Mike, I believe in God, and I believed he believed in God. I believe he does. I said, "Dude, you belong at Grace Point Church. We are a church for those who've given up on the church but haven't given up on God. We are a place because here's what I know about our society across our land. Even though there's atheists and atheists are on the rise, if you really drill down into an atheist, they don't even know why they don't believe in God nine times out of ten. They don't want to believe in God. It's more like it. But by and large, any Tom, Dick, or Harry out there, whether they call him Buddha or they call him Krishna or they call him Jesus or they call him Allah, they believe there's a God. They knew God. They knew God. They knew God because God's creation said there was a God, because there was man, no man is without, was without excuse. There's a God out there. His, his creations, his heavens declare it. Even Thomas Edison said it like this, who was not a believer in Jesus, but he believed that there was a God. When you see everything that happens in the world, science and the working of the universe, you cannot deny that there's a captain on the bridge. I mean, there's a God, okay? But here's the problem. Here's where this begins to fall apart. They did not honor him as God. There's a God. I believe there's a God but I'm going to choose not to honor him. I'm not going to give him his rightful place. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm not going to worship him, but I'm going to blame him. Because worshiping him means I bow my life to him. I give him first place in all my life, but I'm going to blame God. So if God doesn't give me the home that I want, the marriage that I want, the job that I want, or, or if he doesn't heal me from my disease that I've got right here, I'm going to be really mad at God because I prayed and I trusted him. There's a lot of people who blame God but they don't worship God. They'll, they'll accept him as a, as a superior being whenever they need him and they'll seek him whenever they need him, but they do not go to him and long for him. When it comes time to giving, you know, they, they, they look at their life and say, man, I worked hard for that money. That's my money. I'm not going to give that away. My offerings are mine. That's mine. And I might if I choose to someday. Listen, my friends, have we forgotten who gave us everything that we have? Have we forgotten who God is and who we're not. There is a God and I'm not him. And I shouldn't try to be him. And then the very next step, a breath away, is we fail to give thanks to him. We fail to give thanks to him. It becomes, a, it becomes about me. It's about me. I, I've elevated myself to God and that, that I, I, I'm entitled to what I want when I want it. We're like children 
in a sandbox fighting over toys. And it's time for us to realize that when we lose thanks, thankfulness, we have lost our place in this world. And we've elevated ourselves to God in a sense of entitlement from God. And that's a dangerous place to walk. Now, we're those kind of parents that you may have a different opinion of me when you walk out of here. But our kids, we had three, we have three. And our first two, they, they, they learned a lesson in a matter uh, uh, of an experience that we let them experience. They were picky eaters. I'll start with Jordan. She was in the room earlier today. She said I could share her story. She is a very picky eater. If you want to make enemy with her, give her tomatoes. Anything with tomatoes in it, make her eat them. And uh, she will hate you for life. So that's, that's just Jordan for you, okay? But one, one, you know, she's like every other kid whining about what well, we're given and where's the, we're, we're parents, we're trying to parent her. It's like, you know, you can just go to your room and you can just not, not eat. Not, yeah, 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 yeah. We go on. Finally, here's a piece of bread and here's a cup of water. Go to your room. And she went to her room after she looked at us. Are you serious? I mean, several warnings, bread, water, go to your room. All night long, she didn't eat. We're those kind of parents. She didn't eat, and you know what? She's still living. And your kids will too. We sent her to the room. She, 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 she wanted milk instead of water, and Lori wouldn't give her milk. And so she had to live off of bread and water and her body fat for all of a few hours until the next morning. You would think that she would, that Caleb would have learned. Caleb had the same thing. Josh did point out from the first Saturday. He said, Dad, I learned you never had to do that to me. He learned from his two sister, sister and, and his brother. But here's, here's what, here's the problem is our kids have a spirit of entitlement. I need this. I want this. You give it to me. We have the same thing with God. When we lose thankfulness, we're in trouble. They become futile in their thinking is the next move. Every one of these progresses and builds to the next. They become, they, they don't think clearly. They don't think rightly. They, don't, they, they think short term instead of long term. They don't, they don't think big picture. They think in the, in the, in the moment. And they're, they're, they're empty, futile is the word, empty. They're empty in their thinking. They're not complete, well-rounded, wise, doing the wise thing when, when, they're, when they're thinking things through. In fact, it goes on to say in verse 23 and verse 25 that they exchange the glory of the immortal. They exchange the truth. It literally uses a business bartering term. They cashed in God. Just like Esau did. They cashed in God for something that this world could offer. Because they don't think right. And we do the same thing. Which then leads us to the last one. What does it say? Read it with me. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Don't trust your conscience. The darkness, the pit that comes with brokenness. Suppress the truth. Forget God. The cause. Let's talk about the effect as I wrap it up. The effect of our brokenness is quite clear. And I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to circle these phrases. Highlight them. If you have 
digital Bible, whatever. I don't want you to miss them because I want you to go back and study them yourself this week in and depth. Therefore, he, gives, he builds the case. Now he gives the, the verdict. Here's the verdict. Therefore, God gave them up. Verse 26. Or, yeah, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28. They did not see or fit uh, to acknowledge God. God gave them up. And here's a beauty and the tension of God. That whenever we choose to suppress truth, ignore the truth, silence truth, mute truth, whatever we do with truth, change the truth to fit our story, our narrative, when we ignore or forget God and what he's instructed us and who he is in light of who we are, and we get all things out of kelter, then what he's going to do, he's just going to do this. Listen, watch. Okay, have it. Have it your way. He just turns us over and lets us figure it out. If God gives us up to something, this is the beauty of God's grace, it doesn't mean he's given up on us. He may just say, okay, you don't like your food? Here's bread and water. Now deal with it. And we live a couple of seasons on life on bread and water, and we might come out a little bit more appreciative of the things of God. We go some, through some hard season. We fight off some disease. We deal with something, some broken relationship. We have to live through that. We might come through on the other side being a little bit more appreciative of who he is and who we're not and how we relate. Let's talk about the effects real quickly. Number one is we, we turn to practical atheism. This is okay. What you do is you worshiped and you served the creature rather than the creator. Okay? You, you become the God of your universe. You become the center of your story. You are the narrative of your story. You're the, you're the king of your own galaxy. Let, you, you go ahead. I'm gonna turn you over and let's see how you manage your universe. The God's not doing it because he's mean. Remember, it's his wrath. He's doing it out of brokenheartedness that he's having to turn us over. It's brokenheartedness that he can't fix us. Listen, we promised our kids this. We're going to give you our best. We can't give you perfection because we're not perfect. But we're going to give you our best. What you do with the best opportunities, the best education, the best uh, medical care, the best parenting, the safest home, what you do with that, that's up to you. That's up to you. Number two, what happens is we turn to moral relativism. Practical atheism, where we just become atheists in our own little world, where we, no, we, don't, we don't deny God exists, we just don't allow Him to guide our lives. Um, we turn to moral relativism. Whatever works for you, works for you. And I'm going to go, I listen, I don't plan it this way. It happens this way. I'm going to be biblically correct, but I'm going to be politically incorrect. So bear with me. But what happens in Rome doesn't just stay in Rome. Uh, Corinth was similar. It was a broken city. Rome was so broken. In Plato's symposium, 
he affirmed the lifestyle of homosexuality. Four of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Julius Caesar was said of him in a biographer, every, he was every woman's man and every man's woman, Julius Caesar. Now in light of that, read verse 26 and 27 with me. For this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged the natural relations with those that contrary to nature, not their nature, not their proclivity, not their attraction, just to natural what, how God made us, how he formed and shaped us. And men, likewise, it was a man-woman problem, they gave up natural relations with women and they consumed with passions for one another. Men consuming shamelessly acts with men. So shamelessly, I mean, they weren't embarrassed about it. It became publicly accepted. It was law. It was legal. Listen, it may be legal in the culture and be wrong in the Bible and we need to figure out which one we're going to be with. Shameless with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. He says so much in here. It's dishonorable. It's unnatural. It's contrary to nature. It's a shameless act. But here's the key for me. It's exchanging natural relations. It's not natural. It's, not, it's unsustainable. It's physically, emotionally not healthy. It's morally incorrect, period. When God designed us in His perfect design, in His perfect world. Again, remember, Genesis 1 to 3 helps us understand Romans 1 to 3 and vice versa. Genesis 1.27 says like this, So God created man and woman in the image of God. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them. Very clear. There's a line. Genesis 2, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's tough. In a world of moral relativism, it is extremely tough. But this generation, we've we got to think about it. Let's, let's play this on out. You just play it on out in your mind because I don't have time to go there. If we play that lifestyle on out, it is an unsustainable, unhealthy lifestyle. I'll leave it there. This generation owns the next generation a better future. And this is number three. What happens next, cause and effect. Effect number three is there's an anarchy of the soul. Absolutely everything falls apart. Everything crumbles in society. So you think, hey, Mike, 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 I go to church today. And if you're first time guest with us today, welcome to Grace Point Church. <laughs> We're like this every Sunday. Not. But if that didn't hit you, maybe the 21 other things that I'm about to read will hit you. Okay? Because it's not picking on a sexual proclivity. Okay? I'm not picking on that. He just gave two verses to it. I'm just giving just due. Okay, but now let's look at the next one when he says in verse 28, I gave them up again. Why? Because they, 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 they failed to acknowledge God, it says in verse 28, and because of their debased minds. Their minds are all messed up in just a hot dumpster fire. It's my translation. <laughs> to what ought not be done. They were filled with a manner of unrighteousness, unrighteous evil, covetedness, malice. 
You want to spend some time studying word studies this week? There you go. Got 21 words for you to study. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. They were gossip and slanders and haters of God. Insolent. Now that was when I had to look up. Insolent means a mixture of cruelty and pride. This right out beside it, if you have your notes, put bully. This is the bully in school and on the job. Haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. In case we don't have enough evil, let's have an inventor of it, an entrepreneurial of evil. Disobedient to parents. you got a person who's inventing evil in the same sentence with a person who's just simply disobedient to parents. It's all in the same plane. That's what I'm saying. Heterosexuality, a heterosexual couple who, who's, who's hooking up on the outside, living the open marriage, whatever you want to call it, that's just as wrong as a homosexual relationship over here. Just as a, an insolent person or a, a person who's a murderer is just as wrong as a person who disobeys their parents, and it goes on and on. Inventors of evil, disobedient of parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Listen, I have counseled parents and I have counseled married people. I'll just give you one counseling situation of one who struggled because their spouse was having an affair. They wanted everything for their marriage to make it. This, the one who was faithful was willing to give everything to draw back the one who was unfaithful. The problem is, is this faithful one can't make this wondering one love them. So I counseled, and this has not been one and done. This has been multiple multiples. I say that to this one, the faithful one, you got to let them go. Because they're going to have to reach the end of themselves. And I don't know when it's going to be. And I pray to God before it's too much damage. But you got to let them go. Turn them over to their sins. If God gives us up to something, it doesn't mean he's given up on us. We can come back next week, chapter 2. You're going to find that he's not judging and he's not asking us to judge. I'm not standing in judgment and, and I hope you will not stand in judgment of anybody else. I want to close with Augustine. Augustine was a 300... A.D., walking as far away from God. You read his journals, his confessions. He struggled with lust and adulterous relationships all of his life. This is the kind of life he lived. Hard life. He was walking through the park one day, and in Latin, some boys were saying, pick up and read, pick up and read, pick up and read. He's looking around, pick up and read, pick up and read. He doesn't see anything. He keeps walking. Pick up and read, pick up and read. It's always going off in his head. Pick up and read, pick up and read. And then the next thing he saw was a Bible. The next thing he saw, now granted, poor printing press. Did he go in a building? Did he go in a temple? Did he go, where, where did he go? I don't know where he went. He saw a Bible. He picked it up. And the first piece of literature that he read after that encounter with those little boys was Romans Chapter 13. In Romans 13, it says this. Let us walk properly. 
He was out walking around. He was living that kind of lifestyle of moving around in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, but in, not in quarreling or in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. At that point, Augustine bowed his life to Jesus after reading that passage in Romans, and he became what many believe is the greatest Christian to live in the first 1,000 years of the church. And it happened when he turned his life over to Christ because he realized he was on the wrong path. Where do you go today? We talked about some dark stuff today. Where do you go today? You go to Jesus. We're going to talk more and unpack more of that in the weeks ahead. You go to Jesus. Bow your heads with me. Until you're willing to embrace and face your brokenness, you will not experience God's wholeness. What does that mean for you today? Where are you at today? The why behind our culture and the demise of ourself is we have suppressed the truth and we've forgotten God. Father God, open our eyes. As we look into the heavens and the heavens declare the glory of God, as we look into the valleys and we remember that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. When we're on the mountaintops and you tell us to look to the mountains from whence does our help come, our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Lord, everywhere around us, you have declared your glories. Your glories are declaring your firmament, are declaring your greatness. God, not suppress the truth of your word. Make it to sound what we want it to sound like, but bow our knees to you, our lives to you. Here and now. In Jesus' name. Would you stand and worship with